This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 353, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with a little trick. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show. And today we have a very special guest with us for a conversation. I will be talking with Lamon Lawhorn, and you all may not yet be familiar with this cat, but... Um, rest assured, he is really doing some amazing drumming and some amazing work out there. Uh, he is uh, an excellent drummer. Uh, and But what really intrigued me was his uh, academic uh, record. And um, Lamont and I connected uh, just a few months ago at the 2017 PASIC convention, PAS convention. Both of us were presenting and both of us sat in with the Airmen of Note Big Band, and we had a really interesting conversation. And uh, Lamont's clinic was about the evolution of gospel drumming. And uh, what's interesting is, you know, a lot of people are doing the gospel thing these days. It's very popular. But Lamont has taken it a step further, and he went and got his uh, doctorate of musical arts from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro in percussion performance. Uh, and for his uh, doctorate, he uh, he wrote a dissertation called "The Evolution of Contemporary Gospel Drumming." So you know, Lamont can can uh, he plays with symphonies. He uh, is, works uh, you know coaches some of the top uh, marching bands of the area. Uh, he's a great drum set player. You know, he's got it all happening. But he grew up in the church, and like so many other. Uh, guys who grew up in the church really um, understands the whole world of, of gospel drumming and gospel chops. And so I thought I would have him on because, um, you know, since it's such a popular topic, lots of people might be interested to know more about where this music comes from and why it has, it has evolved the way it did and what the world of uh, gospel music is like and and the world in which a lot of these drummers come up and why they're so good and why they develop the style the way that they do. Uh, it's all really interesting stuff. And of course, me being the historian type cat that I am, um, it, it, you know, meeting someone like Lamont, who always is asking the question why and really wants to dig into the history and evolution of, of his you know, his style that he grew up with um, intrigues and excites me. So uh, without further ado, here is my conversation with Lamont Lawhorn. All right, I am here and I've got on the line with me Lamont Lawhorn. Lamont, welcome to the Daniel Glass Show. I'm glad, definitely glad to be here. Yeah, man, thanks. And um, it's funny because we kind of got connected or maybe even reconnected um, at PASIC just a few months ago. Both of us uh, presented down there, and then uh, both of us got the chance to sit in with the Airmen of Note, the uh, yeah. the really great Air Force big band, and that was really cool. Cool experience for me. I don't know how it was for you. Well, it was definitely great for me. I feel as if, uh, you know, I'm a newcomer 
as far as being able to do things like that, because uh, I'm just transitioning, uh, I guess, from the student to the to the teacher role. You know, I've been going to PASIC for a few years and being just the observer, like saying, OK, one day I'll be able to do this. And now things are coming full circle with my responsibilities and presenting and and being able to take part in events. So, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's great. That's cool. Yeah, it's a it is a it is a cool thing, and I know for myself too. When I was uh, a, a, a whippersnapper, young whippersnapper, uh, twenty whatever, twenty something, I uh, went to my first PASIC back in ninety one, I think it was, and uh, was a volunteer logistic, and now I've presented a few times, and it's it's pretty awesome. Um, so the the reason that um, you know I wanted to have you on for a conversation, first of all, you're an ec- terrific drummer. And, uh, you know, you got a lot of stuff as a player, but, um, even more importantly than that, uh, you've, you've really looked into the topic of gospel chops and that's something that, you know, is on everyone's lips these days. It's, it's very hot. It's very popular. Everybody's is doing it. Um, and you actually, you know, uh, wrote, uh, in getting your doctoral degree, um, you wrote a dissertation about gospel chops, um, and that's exciting because it's one of those things where a lot of people are doing it, but, you know, not that many people are really looking into the, the history and evolution of, of, of the, the tradition. And there definitely is one uh, for gospel music, as I've learned a lot in going through your dissertation. And it's, uh, it's really cool stuff. So I, I guess the first question I want to ask you, Lamont, is uh, how would you define gospel drumming and even more specifically, gospel chops, because I think it's something that is a lot of people are wondering. Well, what you know, what exactly is gospel chops, or how would you define that? Well, it, it's hard giving it just a single definition. So, I, I, by writing this dissertation, I guess I'm supposed to be the expert on this topic. But at the same time, I can't pinpoint and say that's gospel chops because the term gospel chops was given to guys who were playing that weren't necessarily defining what it is. You know, so if I say, oh, that's jazz drumming, I know I'm going to say, okay, there's a swing pattern, there's uh, some comping in whatever hand you're doing on the snare, there's feathered bass. Those are characteristics that you can say that's jazz drumming. Well, gospel chops pretty much can be um, viewed or characterized with speed, linear feels, um, but that's that can be found in any style. But what's what's been what's given the characteristics or the definition for what guys are doing, it's just become a phenomenon because the people who are playing with these this style as far as linear a lot of linear fields, a lot of broken up uh things, a lot of fast chops, or all guys who grew up playing in church. So the term really came around once the YouTube uh, epidemic, you know, just just got on the scene because it was guys who were just pretty much shedding, practicing in their church and it was recorded and people gave it the term gospel chops because it was guys in church playing with a lot of chops. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very excellent uh, definition, I would say. Um, In in your dissertation, you you. describe gospel chops as saying having a relatively brief history. So um, would you say that, you know, from what you say, it it, it started um, with the idea of YouTube capturing something that had been going on in church for a while? You know, like when when sort of 
did this phenomenon of playing happen? And and I guess the other part two of this question for me would would be: Is it how how would you define stylistically what what gospel ch- chop drummers are doing, or gospel drumming and gospel music? Because gospel music has changed over time, you know, um, and the role of the drummer in gospel music has changed over time. So when do you think this whole sort of what we currently refer to as gospel chops began, and and musically, what would you tie it to? Well, um. What we are hearing now, honestly, I could I could probably say started around the late late 80s, early 90s, um, and you can tie it into guys like Gerald Hayward, Jeff Lo Davis, um, and really coming out of New York, Brooklyn. They have a certain style of play. Uh, I, in a dissertation, I broke the whole thing into four different categories. But as far as a style of play, guys playing a lot faster, a lot, a lot of more linear feels. I would say this began to happen in the late, late, very late 80s, early 90s. Um, and then it just continued to progress with, with guys uh, playing faster, uh, taking more liberties with the music. Some of the artists giving the drummers a chance to, I guess you can say, stretch their legs uh, with. And, and then in the 2000s, definitely things just really began to boom. You got you got to see artists like Kim Burrell actually write in interludes and reprises into her music. That was just pretty much an instrumental showcase. And so this became more of, I guess you can say, coming out of the fusion style of drumming. Like if you really look at the Buddy Rich Memorial concert and you saw uh, Dave Weckl, Vinny Caliuta, Steve Gadd doing that, the trading fours or eights or whatever it is they did, that style of play, which a lot of people said was fusion style or, you know, whatever that style they, they tried to label it then. That's how the gospel drumming is pretty much viewed and considered now. The same Vinny feels and the same Dave Weckl, they were just ripping around the kit. That's exactly what gospel drumming is somewhat viewed as today. Interesting. Um, we're going to get to that, but I, I kind of want to take a step back um, mm-hmm. because you've you've done a lot of looking into the history and evolution, you know, of uh, you know gospel drumming, and certainly mm-hmm. uh, drums were being used in churches uh, and in gospel music, you know, before the late '80s. But I always ask that question of uh, you know. Well, you know, today, I mean, whether it's in a, in black churches or, um, you know, really like today in most churches, you find drum sets, most churches that have music. But if you step back and you look at it, it's sort of like if you think of where church comes from and you think of it as very solemn and somber or European, European cathedrals, you know, it, the last thing you think about is a drum set. So when, you know, and I know we we did talk about this earlier, but in your in your opinion, when did the drum set first appear in um, in churches, uh, and what prompted that to happen? Well, the drum set honestly didn't appear. The American drum set, as we call it, did not appear in music until the late fifties, and it was nineteen fifty eight. Uh, the Gospel Caravans, um, and. The reason why is because the gospel music has this love-hate relationship with secular, secular music, meaning there's there's a lot of influence with secular artists that either come from church or have ties to church. And that tends to become a blend of the two. Like you look at artists like Bobby Blue Bland and, and Ray Charles, look at the movement. Ray Charles is definitely 
getting kicked out of clubs because people were going into clubs and he plays songs. And they'd be like, wait, that's church music. You can't you can't do that. You know, what I mean, like that's that's blasphemy. But as as some things tend to become more and more accepted, you tend to get more things from the secular a world accepted into the church. So drum starts to slowly make its way with people like Shirley Caesar, who we call the first lady of gospel music. She began her career in the 1940s, but it was something that she recorded in 1958 that the drum set uh, began or was, was featured with a gospel caravan. So you can look at the like, late 1950s, early 1960s. Like you look at the tune, Oh Happy Day, you mm-hmm. know, with the Edwin Hawkins singers, yes. that, that, made, that made top 40 yes. uh, in, in the 1960s. So to say that a gospel tune that that featured a drum set, and even though the, you know they weren't playing anything spectacular, but it, it was the fact that there's a drum set um, in that time began to say, okay, this is what I'm hearing on the radio. So maybe it, it's a bit more acceptable now if that same style of music mirrors what if the secular music mirrors what's happening in the gospel music realm. So it was a late 1950s, early 1960s that we started to see drums actually found in sanctuaries. That's, that's really interesting. It kind of, it kind of goes both ways. And actually in, in my own history, the same, same kind of thing happens in country music. You know, country uh, was a style that evolved without drums. Uh, Drums were not part of that tradition. It was a European kind of a folk, uh, tradition and you know they didn't have any sense of a drum set or even uh, uh, drums it was acoustic music and it took um, it took the evolution of, of R&B rhythm and blues music in the 1950s before artists in Nashville and then of course the evolution of, of early rock and roll before the Nashville artists started saying hey we need to have some drums on this and the producers you know fought it uh, tooth and nail the whole way. So it's it's really, it's a very interesting um, uh, point. I think, I mean, one thing that I also wanted to ask you about with, with regard to this topic is the, uh, you know, obviously uh, rhythm, strong rhythm has been a part of the black church for, you know, much longer, going back much longer, obviously, than the 1950s. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And was it sort of a natural progression, you know, with hand claps and tambourine, you know, and that sort of up-tempo um, kind of feel of, of, of gospel music um, in the black church setting, was that sort of, did that make a natural uh, pathway for drums to, to, to start being present? Oh, of, of course. So when you think about evolution, you're thinking about starting at one point and growing, getting larger to, to becoming something more prominent. So if you look at, I mean, in, in the gospel community or just the black church community or black African traditions, you had to start with body percussion and, you know, and as we call it, foot stomping and hand clapping. If you you look at, you know, I, I referenced a few movies, you look at the movie Glory, where it had the, the scene where the where the uh, black regiment was circled around having a makeshift service and they were singing, clapping. And that was it. Boom, clap, boom, clap, boom, clap, boom, clap. And then later on, you had instances where they came introduced the tambourine. And uh, there's a lot of times where like, I grew up in church and, and people would play the tambourine and they just beating this thing like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and knowing that I play drums in church, but I'm, I'm classically trained as well. When I'd say, hey, I can play the tambourine, people be like, hey, bring your tambourine to church. Like, no, I don't play it like that. You know, what I mean? I'm, I'm not that, that type of tambourine. <laughs> right. Player. 
you know, if you want a thumb roll, I'm good. But yeah, I, I got you. If, if, if you, I got a thumb roll, I can give you a few excerpts, whatever you need. I got you. <laughs> right, but, right, you right. know, but the way it evolved, it, it, it was a, it was an easy evolution from hand clapping to tambourine to to noise, you know, sim- similar things of noisemakers or whatever. But in order to get more of a prominent groove, you had to introduce the drum set. And then I also referenced the movie like The Color Purple. Like there was a scene in the color purple where the lady who was who was singing in her club, they had the drums, had a drum set. But at the end of the movie, she reunited with her father who was in the church and, and the whole band moved its way into the church from the horn section, the drummer. And it's kind of a, a an over overlying factor just showing how people who were coming back to the church brought certain things that enhanced the music into the church. So people who were somewhat in the secular world who were coming back to church, maybe they born again Christians, they brought certain things from the secular world that helped enhance the worship service. So instead of it just being now hand clapping and tambourines, now you have an actual drum set or beat maker or groove enhancer mm-hmm. to help uh, keep the worship service going. Mm-hmm. And and when you say keep the worship service going, what do you think that means? Um, you know, what, what role does that strong sense of rhythm or those rhythm makers uh, play in, in keeping the service going? What do you mean by that? What do you think? Well, in, in black church worship, well, it's, it's called praise and worship. So it's a part of the service that begins service. So everybody's coming. Just imagine you, you've gone through the week. You're having all type of things come. You When you come to the church, that's your safe haven. So the praise and worship service is, is the time to create the atmosphere to begin to praise God, worship God, and then get the word or the sermon that's supposed to come and give and, and last you throughout the week. So that worship service is very important. And the music, what it is said is the most um, encapturing way to praise God. Uh, in, in, in church, we learn that the devil was the minister of music and he was kicked out of heaven. You know, and his it's and that's the whole um, way that that the church feels that the devil is making his strongest way back through music. You listen, everybody listens to music. Everybody has music some part of their life. So if we can negatively influence music, then the devil can make an easier way back into our lives. So henceforth, the worship service, we are creating lyrics. We are creating uh, music, chords and things like that to show our affection, our praise to God for what he's been doing for us throughout the week, throughout our lives, throughout the years. So this service, it could be 10 minutes, uh, it can be 15 minutes, 30 minutes. It's pretty much a way for everybody to focus their minds and their spirits on being in the service, praising God, worshiping God, and to open their hearts to receive the word or the sermon that uh, they're going to be preached to for that week. Interesting, yeah. And so music definitely plays an integral part. And the groove of it all uh, is is is. The foundation of it is the drum set. So there's a lot of times, as I call them, O100. So there'll be devotional songs or, or hymns and books that would everybody would read out of. But then it would go into the praise and worship service. And that's when the music would be heightened and more more structured, more chordal tendencies, things going on, different type of lyrics. But at the same time, it was definitely a way to transition into the sermon. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting then too, you know, because you talk about how music could either be used 
in praise of the Lord or, you know, the, the devil could be behind it, so to speak. And so you can kind of see that that struggle between, uh, you know, working in the spiritual world or working in the sec- secular world and how that, you know, how that creates conflict. You know, famous examples are, you know, Sam Cooke, who started off as a gospel singer and then, you know, moved into more of the mainstream thing. Aretha Franklin started as, a, a, you know, she was a daughter of a, of a well-known minister. Um, so I know that's, you know, always kind of there's sort of a push and pull there in terms of um, gospel, at least singing. And I don't know if maybe it's the same for for drummers as well who come up in that scene and then want to transition out uh, or or into the more mainstream gigs. Oh, definitely. It's, it's, it's still a struggle for anyone involved in the church when it becomes music and then transitioning, be it singers, be it uh, keyboard players, bass players, but drummers, even the same way. There's a lot of guys and I, and, I, and I think about this, like the reason why I really went into this topic is because there are a lot of people who play with pop artists. I'm thinking about 90 percent of pop artists, the drummers grew up playing in church. And so the church tends to be that foundational training that prepares you to do whatever it is. But then there's also this conflict that happens because people in church kind of feel that you should use your guy giving talents for church why are you taking your god-given talents and and doing them for the world as they say mm. so it's, def- it's definitely a battle in the black church because uh, uh, you know being that church happens every uh wednesday service or every sunday service being if you're going to playing for popular artists you're traveling all over the world so they're saying oh you're getting out of church you don't go to church as much because you're on the road and so since you're not in church then you can be exposed to certain things and you can get away so there's always that battle that if you get out of church that then there's opening doors for things to happen when you should be using your gift for the glory of god in the sanctuary. Right, right. You know, let alone the subject matter of the music that you might be playing, you know, might not be church approved, shall we say. <laughs> right. And that's true. But I and, I and I remember going to Gerald Hayward's clinic at PASIC yeah. and he would say, hey, um, I grew up in church. I'm a church guy. You know what I mean? So even though I play in these avenues, you know, when the when the gig is over, I go to my room. Uh, you know, I'm not out, you know, whatever they do, smoking, drinking. That's not what yeah. I do. He's like, he's like, I go out and I go buy shoes. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I go you know? buy shoes. That's good. And so that's one of the things that, you know, people who grow up in church, drummers or musicians, they should still have that foundation that they know, you know, right from wrong. If whatever you do is considered right or wrong, they should still have that filter to say, you know, this is not something I want to get involved in. You know, I know where my faith is. So that's something that, you know, we kind of have to reiterate to people that just because you grow up in church and then you get into the secular world, there's a phrase you can be in the world, but not of the world. Mm hmm. So you can be in these circles doing, you know, that, you know, secular music is or whatever happens in the secular world. But that doesn't mean I partake in everything that they do. Ultimately, I'm just here to do a job. And as long as I get do, do the job right, whatever extracurricular you do, that's on your own. I know who I am and I know what I'll do. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, speaking of of Gerald Hayward uh, and, and, you know, I had the. The opportunity, I, I'm sure you're familiar with the Kick Snare Hat uh, movie that was released by uh, DW maybe 10 years ago now. Um, it's a really great documentary. It features uh, 
Gerald Hayward, Aaron Spears, uh, Cora Dunham Coleman, uh, and Nissan Stewart, I think, are the four drummers in that. And I think that that documentary introduced a lot of people who were not familiar with this scene to um, the world that, you know, a lot of gospel drummers grow up in. And, of course, there's like a massive shed session between the four of them at the end of that movie, which is just, um, you know, mind-blowing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I had the opportunity uh, – I, I lived in LA for a long time, and so when that movie came out, they did like a like a roundtable at uh, at the Grammy Theater, and uh, and then they did it for two nights, and and the drummers got up and and played a little bit, which was really cool. But they they sat around and talked about stuff, and one of the things that um, really Im- impressed by me that I wanted to ask you about is the sort of the idea of the church as the center of the community for a lot of African-American drummers, musicians, um, you know, where they get their training and how intense it is, how competitive it is, how how much the community is, like, paying attention to what's going on. So maybe you could talk about that sort of, like, the, the church as a, as the training ground, you know, and why, how that affects, you know, how good so many of these guys are coming up out of the church scene. Oh, man, it, it is. Well, first, you know, at the first first thing you said, the church being the center of the community. Yeah. Um, growing up, it, it truly served as a place of safe haven. Um, everybody really enforced Christianity and religion in the black communities early on, because uh, I mean, as you can say, coming out of slavery, uh, Christianity always preached hope for a better day or better time. And so the black church was still the place where people could go to receive that hope. Mm-hmm. So growing up, everybody was always going to church. Like I just remember me going to church, had something on Monday, something on Tuesday, Wednesday night service, something on Saturday, something on Sunday morning, something on Saturday afternoon. And <laughs> I mean, sun, Sunday morning, something on afternoon, Sunday evening. So everybody knew you were going to church. And so being that the church was always welcoming. That's your first chance. So there was always some church looking for a musician or the musicians may be growing up, growing up, playing, getting older, saying, hey, I need to go play at this new hot spot or they leave the church. So that's that, that's an opportunity for somebody else to, to, to come up and learn. Yeah, sure. And so the, it's such a such a foundational training ground because it happens so much, meaning church services. So. If I'm a drummer or a kid playing an instrument and I know Monday is musician rehearsal, Tuesday is choir rehearsal. So that's full band and the voices. Wednesday, we have midweek service. Uh, Friday, maybe youth service. Saturday, maybe um, male course every third Saturday. And then Sunday, you have two or three services. Just think how much playing you're doing during mm-hmm. the week. And you got to prepare for all that too. You know, you got to practice. And, and the thing about the, and what's what's so crazy about the church is that uh, it really trains you to be ready for whatever. Because there's no there's there's there wasn't any charts. And and what's crazy about say when I say there wasn't any charts because I'm thinking about me growing up playing in church. It goes like this: Hey, there's this new song I want to play. Here's the tape or here's the CD. We're gonna rehearse it on tomorrow. So that means whatever style it was, regardless of who was playing, if it was some smoking drummer, if it was Calvin Rogers, Gerald Hayward, Jeff Davis, Joe Smith, 
if you were just some kid who'd been playing for a year, you still had to learn it like that. <laughs> right. So, so, so you had to go and heighten your skills because you go home and play those fields. You go home and play those licks. You go home and and try to mimic those ghost notes or whatever it was that that the drummer was playing. And you had to have it down pat. Otherwise, if you didn't, there's somebody else or some other little kid who's playing just like you who went home and practiced it just a little longer or just mm-hmm. a little harder. So you have to make sure that you get it down pat as much as possible. And this mm-hmm. is the pre-YouTube era days. So you had to just listen to it over and over. You know, you had to make sure you had good time, even though you, maybe your, your your CD or tape didn't have enough battery, so it played it a little slow. You know, everything, <laughs> right. you just had to learn it as best as possible so if you go through all of these years of just trying to learn it as best as possible that's why gospel drummers ears are so fine-tuned to be able to play whatever because they are exposed to so much music early on and they have to play so much again all those services during the week each time you play you're getting better and better so that that whole center of the community also you knew that if you were in church you were in a good place so you yeah. could always go to the church maybe you could maybe you had a deacon who was in your family so you could say hey uncle uncle joe could you open up the church so i could go down and practice sure i know you know they're not going to be out in the streets uh, doing something crazy. They're not going to be involved in gang activity. They're not, you know, doing anything negative. They're trying to go to church to get get better on their craft or their God-given ability that yeah. people view it as. So church being that center, I know I can always go to church and practice. So definitely over the summers when kids, you know, weren't in school, they're spending all type of hours in the church just playing. That's great. So that that's really how a lot of guys or a lot of musicians, uh, definitely drummers, get their chance to grow their skills. Yeah. And I think what's so cool about it is that it really pushes you at an early age um, and it sets a high bar, you know, so you're you're around it, you're seeing and hearing great musicians and you realize kind of like, man, if I'm going to succeed in this environment, I got to step it up. You know, it, it's it, it it shows you what what you got to get to. Almost oh, definitely. I can I can remember at age seven listening to Joe Smith play um, Thank You, Lord. I always reference this solo. Uh, now from Fort Worth, and uh, it was a guy named Mike Mitchell Sr., who uh, I, just, I just couldn't play this field. And he came in, and he was the happening drummer around town. And he just he nailed it. And so look, I looked at it as I'm just eight years old. I can't get it, but I'm going to go home and practice it, you know, because there's always someone better and you always want to get your chance to play. That was just something I always think about, you know, that it wasn't necessarily competitive for me like that in that in that specific situation, because, you know, he was a lot. He was he's an adult drummer, professional drummer, and I was just some kid getting a chance to play. But it happens in so many churches where you're trying to get better, you're trying to get better. And, and somebody may be, you know, there may be Four kids who are looking to play. Somebody may be able to play with a mass choir. Somebody may only be able to play offering. Mm. Somebody, somebody may be only play the last song as people are leaving the church. But you just have to be ready when they call your number so that you can play your song. And if you're not, there's somebody else over there that's ready to play. Yeah. I remember one of the funniest things Gerald Hayward said at that uh, kick snare hat uh, uh, screening. He said that not only, you know, did he did he have to uh, um, you know worry about impressing the other musicians? But you know, like 
the the ladies in the congregation would, would <laughs> lay you out if you didn't have it together. You know, they would have no no compunction in just letting you know if you weren't up to snuff. And so, you know, you're you're dealing with the whole congregation as well. You know, checking you out basically, evaluating, <laughs> criticizing. Most you know. most definitely, uh, I can again. I can remember personal stories, and I, I don't want to just keep referring back to personal stories, no, but good. it's just my great. my experience. My mother had no musical training at all, none at all. She loved the violin, but she sang in the choir. And so just imagine, you know, someone up in the choir, they're looking out, the drums are to the far left. So she can't see me, I can't see her. Playing, 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 I've been practicing, practicing. So I tried some new feel, you know, I want to, can't wait to get to church. I'm going to try this new feel. On the ride home, she's like, did you mess up today? I say, what'd you say? say? Did you mess up? Because I heard something a little crazy that didn't quite sound like, you know, the CD that they passed out. So my mom would always correct me like, hey, I heard you mess up a little bit. I mean, you there's no doing wrong. Somebody in the family or some some lady in the congregation is going to say, hey, baby, you're playing a little too loud or you're moving a little too fast. Slow it down. So there's there's <laughs> always someone that's going to correct you in the church. Yeah. Lo and behold, there's yeah. always somebody. Yeah, that's cool though. I mean, I think that's a that's a really uh, you know, it's a, a really positive thing and it's a very organic environment to grow up in. You know, it's not uh sort of forced or you're not alienated, you know, you're not like sitting alone in a practice room your whole life. You're out there doing it, being a part of what's going on in in daily life. And I think that's a that's the best, you know, probably the best way to learn because it's just part of your life. You know, it's not something separate. Right. It's it's a definitely an advantage. I, I, I'd say an advantage over someone who just has a garage band of friends who practice maybe once every two weeks or someone who who's in the academic setting who doesn't have the opportunity to play so much during the week. It just gives them an opportunity to continue a one to, to learn chemistry. Uh, you're playing with multiple people. You're learning, learning how to uh, how, where you fit. So I always say the drums by itself has has an EQ between the snare, bass drum, hi-hat, cymbals. Everything lies in a certain place. But also the drums as a whole within the band fits in a certain place as well. So you're learning how to adapt and how to communicate with other people. You're learning how to uh how to grow because sometimes they're going to say, Hey, I need you to do a little bit more right here. Hey, I need you to do uh, lay back a little bit here. So you're learning different ways to enhance your own playing just by playing with other people. Yeah. And you're, and you're performing right off the bat as well. And it's kind of a, you know, uh, uh, you know, you're not just, not just performing for your friends or, you know, at a party or something. It's like, this is, this is, the real deal. This is this is yeah. it. this is this is a real world situation. You know. Yeah. So, exactly. Yeah. Um. So let's let's talk a little bit about some of the meat and potatoes of um what you would play in a church situation and you know what the drumming style is all about. Um. One thing you talk about in the dissertation is what what is what is called the shout beat. Um, and, and maybe I'm, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is sort of what people might say is the, the typical gospel beat, right? Sort of up tempo, um, you know, kind of, you know, like a, almost like a fast two kind of a thing. Is that, is that what you would call the shout beat? Yeah, that's what I characterize it as shout. You can call it shout music or the shout beat, or in some areas people call it the bump. 
Yeah. Um, it's it's a two beat feel again, boom pop, boom pop, and the typical tempo is probably probably between like 140, 160. Mm-hmm. And some and some and some churches like it in 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 the Northeast they take it real fast like 180. So that's that that's pushing it to be do chat do chat do chat you know wow. doing like that. And, and the shout shout music or the beat comes from just. Um, uh, in, in a situation in the church where people began to get filled with the Holy Spirit. So a lot of, make it long story short, it's a lot of yelling, a lot of moving around, dancing, but people are, again, dancing for the Spirit, and that's that's the music that plays behind it. And so, um, this again is to be filled. There's a lot of things that have changed now because it used to be just a simple used to happen by chance and you know uh, during the sermon the pastor's preaching towards the end of the sermon he starts to go to church as we call it it's been given a term cartophony now that's still a bit confusing to me because growing up it was just going to church but it now has a term but mm. you know once that once that would take place uh there would be some music to go behind it a few chords uh, a few hits you know the with the pastor's cadence would change as far as how it's presenting his voice it would get real monotone mm-hmm and then the the musicians would sway back and forth. That's how you know it's the hit. Da 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 bum You'd be catching hits left and right. And then you would just go into uh, the the kick drum would start. Um, 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 um. And then it would go into the shout beat. Boom, ba, boom, ba, boom, ba, boom. And as far as the music behind it, it's it's, it's pretty much a walking bass line. That's what I consider it. But it just be going a it, it would go a lot faster. And so yeah. And so now, now things have changed because there's a lot of artists who or a lot of artists start are now starting to create songs just behind that gospel beat um, and or that two beat feel. Because a lot of gospel music can be uh, it's, it's groove based. Um, a lot of it is in four four. It's kind of rare that you find odd metered. Uh, like five four or something in seven. You see a lot of four four music in gospel or six eight swing, mm-hmm. but the but the two beat, you know that's a go- that's a gospel genre beat, and so artists now are creating songs particular strictly with that style of play um and in the there's a lot of references you think look at the people like ty tribbett these songs are just all over the place uh orchestration wise and and, uh compositionally they're all over the place but it's still shout music and that's something that's that's really taking off really big in gospel drumming yeah there's uh in the kick snare hat movie and i i highly recommend Anybody who's interested in in gospel drumming, gospel chops, I guess, but but really gospel drumming, uh, to check that movie out because it does. I I don't know what your feelings are about it, but I think it does a good job of digging into kind of the this environment, which maybe for a lot of white Americans, white drummers is a, is a pretty alien world. You know, I didn't really know that much about it, um, and it was really eye opening and just very interesting. But there's a scene where. Uh, Gerald Hayward just plays with an organ player. I don't know if you remember that scene. I think it's his uncle, mm. it, and, it's, mm. and he's playing a Hammond organ, and it's just drums and Hammond organ playing that that shout beat for like you know a long time, <laughs> you know, at least five, six, seven minutes, uh, and it is it's very fast, and the stuff that he all the variations he puts in there, you know, it's just amazing. You think, oh, it's just a two beat, you know that 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 could be, you know that goes on a polka or klezmer or broadway two or whatever you know lots of times different mm-hmm. kinds of music use a two beat 
but the way that it, it it moves, like you said, kind of in from the gospel tradition and what people have done with it, is pretty. Uh, it's it's pretty spectacular, and it's it's really physical, right? I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about you know the physicality involved. Oh, it's, it's very very demanding, um, and and it and it helps. Uh, build your endurance. I don't know any gospel drummer that hasn't worked on shop music by yourself because you just never know how long it's going to go. Even in the church service, it can go on for 10, 15, 20 minutes. Like it can maybe die down a little bit and then it'll come back. So it's very, very tiring. I mean, it's very demanding just on, on your limbs. Like to, to, to just play the beat by itself is tough. Um, that fast for that length of time and then to add feels so if you're adding any like linear feels i mean it's just it's just tough if you and 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 the thing about it there's so much you can do in the shout beat like you can change up the the ride pattern or the hi-hat pattern whatever it is you're playing you can definitely add feels you can add uh doubles as far as like uh i mean all type of doubles you can add uh broken up linear fields as i said before and it all can be found in shout music and so what a lot of gospel drummers do when you just share the practice or whatever you can play whatever fields you want to but then you also say well can i put this in shout music i know I, i know a lot of people that do that as well and now how gospel drummers practice, because you can create tracks or loops or whatever with just on a regular keyboard or an MPC or, you know, off your computer. A lot of people just have a track that just that there may be a kick and a clap. Boom, cackle, 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 cackle. And that just loops for for hours and you can just go and that'll be your foundation to keep you on track. And so you can just share it, literally share it to shout music. And then once you get into that environment where you have to play. You've already shared. You've already practiced. You have a little bit more endurance, but yeah, it, 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 is, it is quite the demand on a drummer to to be able to do that much and for that length of time playing that fast. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, it's interesting because we're you know we're talking about how um, things would go back and forth. You know, gospel music affecting the secular world and then secular elements affecting the gospel world. And when I was, my band Royal Crown Review that I was involved with, I talk about it a lot on this show, we did a lot of um, 1950s R&B. And uh, um, our, our tenor player had grown up uh, in, in South Central LA. Uh, and he, as a young kid, got to sit in with Big J McNeely, who's like one of those classic uh, honking tenor players, who's actually still alive today. He's, he's probably almost 90, if not 90. And Big J McNeely would, would take a tune like Flying Home, and he would, you know, classic swing, you know, swing tune, uh, and he would play it, you know, and it was exactly that that gospel too and then he would play like 35 choruses of flying home on the tenor he would walk the bar and lay down and you know so it was, it, it had a very similar effect it was like drive people you know take people to a new place i guess you could say just a different environment um mm-hmm. but i remember playing those tunes and actually i do a clinic on shuffles and i play just a small demonstration like two minutes you know and I'm pretty beat after two minutes. So we used to do that thing for like 10 minutes also. And it was like unbelievable. You know, it really is a, a chop builder. Man, your arms, you know, like your forearms and your legs <laughs> yeah. are just beat. Like just, yeah, it's it's definitely a chop builder. And, and 
a couple other aspects of the drumming itself that I definitely want to talk about. Um, I definitely want to talk about linear fills because you've mentioned that a whole bunch of times. And, and again, linear is another word that is on everybody's lips these days and everybody's interested in it. But the first thing I, I want to also talk about is volume because uh, a lot of times, you know, when you see gospel chop drummers on YouTube or um, you maybe you see uh, like a, a, a modern uh, gospel quartet, a gospel choir doing one of these kind of up-tempo things. Everything is loud. Everything's burning. Um, but you also mentioned, and I would again think it being in church, that there are, there are quiet moments as well. And, you know, how, I mean, was there like a lot of dealing with being able to play, you know, obviously for a lot of drummers, playing quietly is harder than playing loud. You know, it's, it's much more difficult. Is there, is there that aspect to it as well? Very much so. Um, because, it, it, it's it's quite difficult. I remember being told uh, being told I was a good drummer because things that I could do loud, I could also do soft, <laughs> and that was because you had, you really just have to practice it. But a lot of times, um, the music that's being demanded is loud. Um, it's really upbeat, and what makes a, a a gospel drummer a more mature drummer is if they can control their dynamics, uh, especially, you know, when there's times when you just hold back or play pocket, which is just straight time. And if you can just lay the groove and then when you do a feel remain at the same volume, that's a, a sign that you're, you're, you're a more mature drummer. A lot of times when people say, Oh, well, well people, I, I tend to get on students or things of that nature when I'm trying to work on gospel techniques. When I say, hey, play this linear feel, it, as soon as it's time for them to play, they automatically go up in volume. And I'm like, no, 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 keep it down. I guess it's because you're, you're, you're trying to get these notes out that you're really just pressed to play louder. Um, and what's what's happening in, in in a lot of churches, which what I feel is a is a disgrace, is a lot of these sound shields. <laughs> They, a lot of yeah, a lot of churches have invested in these uh, to block the sound or to mute some of the sound because a lot of the drummers who are playing all of this stuff they play really really loud. They, they um, play at one volume, <laughs> one volume and one volume only. Yeah. That is the drummer's volume. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and so, um, but one thing that's starting to happen in a lot of the bigger churches is that. Um, Drums are starting to become mic'd. Uh, it's starting to become a lot bigger production. So the sound engineer can pretty much control how how much volume is coming from the drummer because they put them in the sound sound shield or a barrier or their own little little cocoon mm -hmm. and they can control everything else that comes out. So it's an easier or better mix. But in some of the smaller churches, yeah, they they a lot of churches really do have these sound shields and barriers up so that it can it can mute and diminish a lot of the sound that comes up. So volume is something that uh, is is has definitely uh, grown or enhanced because some of these guys just really play really, really loud. Yeah. And do you think, I mean, you know, the whole idea of those sound shields is kind of controversial, I suppose, for a lot of guys. They don't want to, I, I really, I think I've only had to do it once or twice. You know, generally the, the environment I play in, you better be able to play dynamically or you're not, you're not in that, you're not going to be playing. But what do you think about that? Do you think that's a good thing or do you, do you think that's a crutch? You know, obviously you know, we, we feel drummers should be able to play dynamically, or do you think it's like, hey, that's the way of the world, and that's the world we live in today? Well, just me personally, knowing that I, I, like I grew up playing drums in church, so that's my first foundation. Like, I didn't have a, 
a le- I'm, I just turned 35 yesterday, actually. Oh, happy so birthday, I, I man. Didn't... Congratulations. Thanks. Wait, so is your birth is your birthday New Year's Day? Yeah, New Year's Day. Wow. But I was born in the a- I was born in the afternoon, so I don't get any special recognition as a like, <laughs> first first baby of the year or anything. So you know, but it was <laughs> yeah, New Year's Day. I'm a New Year's Day baby. That's cool so, though, because every year your birthday is a party. You know, I mean, yeah, everybody year. everybody celebrates my birthday, so I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the whole world yeah, but, celebrates your birthday. Yeah, it's all about me. You know, <laughs> but um, I didn't have my first real like I grew up playing drums in church when I was seven, had a lesson, had lessons for about six months. But then I didn't have another full drum set lesson until I got to graduate school. Um, and I was like, wow, you know, OK, this is how you do things. And so I think it's it's a it's a crutch because coming from an academic perspective, being that I grew up playing in church, but are still academically, tra- you know, and orchestrally trained, I feel that there's not enough avenues for people to actually learn in church because they're learning from learning from people who can't necessarily communicate with them like they're learning from youtube or they're learning from cds or they're learning from other other areas where people can't say this is how you do it or no that's good but you should try it like this so it's becoming a crutch because they're not the, the drummers aren't learning how to play softer because they're saying, oh, it goes like this. So it's like there's that that's their only way of learning, if that makes sense. Yes. And then when, when so they're be, they're getting a crutch because they say, well, I'm just going to play like this. Just put the the sound barrier uh, up and I guess I'll make it happen. Or the uh, the the church, the people in the church are saying it's just too loud. We're going to put this up, like keep playing, but we're going to put this up so that you're softer. And I, I think that, that that's a big crutch. And, and it's and it's and it's happening just that, you know, drummers learning how to read music. Uh, that that's another issue. There's a lot. There's some issues that I have with drummers in church. It's just because there's not enough information for them or they're not actively reaching out to get more information. Right. It's kind of a, a, a closed a closed system in a way. Um one of the interesting things that, uh, again, that, that they talked about at the Kick Snare Hat uh, Roundtable is that, um, and Gerald Hayward, you know, said this this had been an issue for him. Um, you know, he said that it, it really is more of an oral tradition that, you know, guys are learning off of records or they're, they're you know, they're, they're, they're learning from their peers, obviously today learning off of YouTube. Um but that, uh, you know, a lot of these guys, when they get out of the church environment and they're in, you know, the the professional music world, like he said, he got the gig with Mary J. Blige. And the first day that he went to rehearsal, you know, they set the book down in front of him and he's sweating. You know, I mean, he he managed to to work it out so he could he could do the gig. But he said, you know, he couldn't read and he felt like it was past like he had kind of gone it had been too many years where he now totally had to depend on his ears. And um, interestingly, Teddy Campbell, you know, American Idol, amazing drummer, he was in the audience that night and and he actually, they had a conversation with him from the audience because he he does read, of course, you know, you'd have to, to do that American Idol gig. There's just too much music um, and too many changes to memorize stuff. But, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, is that an issue that you see in the community and... Any ideas about what, how how you might deal with that, or what do you what do you think should be done, or you know that that would be the probably the number one issue. I guess you can say one A and one B. Um, you know, reading and musical preparation. 
um, like these guys are, are amazing drummers, like fantastic drummers. But a lot of times growing up in, in church, you're not necessarily being prepared to leave the church. Like the reason why you leave the church is because someone recognizes that you have a great talent. Okay, this guy's a fantastic drummer. So you 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 leave the church and get put in, in a situation where you have to be a musician. Um, and that can be a difference. Uh, you're a great drummer, horrible musician. Like you play the drums well, but can you communicate with other musicians? So it, it, it becomes it creates a, a problem because you have these guys who have this amazing feel. They have great chops. They they can play circles around a, a, a lot of you know professional and prominent drummers, but you can't hold down the gig because you can't read music. But at, at the same time, it's like uh, you have to ask. Well, when was I asked to learn how to read music? Or when was I given the opportunity to read music? And so one of the things that, you know, I feel that um, needs to happen uh, is, is that there needs to be it, it's kind of hard to say that there needs to be even because it, it needs to happen. But it's like, who's going to be the person that does it? Which is one of the reasons why I wrote this dissertation. And I had uh, some concerns at the end, end of the dissertation that I addressed. And one of them was just how gospel drummers aren't necessarily fully, fully prepared to move into the professional world because they can't read music. A lot of times they get by on their natural talent, but they can only play certain gigs uh, because, you know, they, they, they won't like a lot of times uh, gospel drummers won't be the first call drummer. Because if it says, hey, I need you to come in and record five tunes for me. We only have two hours. I got the charts. You can't call a gospel drummer sometimes because all gospel drummers can't read music. A lot of, and also sometimes, um, when I said the the musical maturity of the gospel drummer, uh, what was said to me during in, during a dissertation, I talked to Calvin Rogers, and he was like, "You can type in gospel drummer, and you can you can find a 15 year old who's playing amazing chops in a church where he, the drums are beat up, the cymbals are broken, but this guy's blazing. But if I asked him to go on tour," Could he? Because he doesn't necessarily have the musical maturity to not play everything he knows in every song. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's where I think a lot of times the gospel chops term has gotten a negative connotation because these guys are fantastic players, but they don't know how to dial it back a little bit. They don't know how when to do correct placement of certain things. Um and and it's not to take away from any any not to take away from his talent, but like you look at Aaron Spears and everything he did with Usher, like the, the, like the guy like pretty much uh, changed how drumming took place in church a lot because you looked at you looked at oh man he's doing that with Usher is that how all the drummers are well Usher allowed him to do that you know I mean, Usher was was wanted to take that band to another level and they he gave him the liberty to do that. So a lot of guys came in and was like, oh, I learned this Aaron Spears lick, but you're doing it to a ballad. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know, that doesn't make sense. So I think, you know, there's there's some, some really big issues in the church with um, gospel drummers learning how to read music and also learning how to apply the skills that they've gained in gospel drumming. So I, I wish that there could be, you know, how, how to rec rectify this. I wish that there could be a lot more clinics that take place from big name guys in the industry who grew up playing drums in church is like a how to. Yeah. I know there were, I know there were a big, uh, like gosh, um, like society, um, 
I forgot the name of it. And it's sad. Sadly, I was a part of it. Um, like the uh, gospel drummers. It was like, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but you could, you could, there were like chapters for states that you could go Ooh, and, wow. and do certain things, but it, it, it pretty much died off. But I wish there were there were like ways that you could just have like big clinics for gospel drummers that just just talk to them and say, hey, I was in your shoes once before. These are some of the things that you could do to prepare you to get on you know, the next level. Like there's so many resources and books and things out there that just show people how to read from the very basic. And I cover that with a lot of my students and they're like, oh, this is what it is. And they can play. Circles range like a. It's, it's not saying uh, how to for dummies or whatever, but it's just a very basic book that just shows you how to play certain things. It shows you what the what a key is. It shows you okay what hits are. It shows you what the slashes between a measure mean. It's just keep playing the groove. Like what is that? It just means to keep playing the same thing, you know. And it's just I just wish there were more resources for gospel drummers to to get educational information and not just the musical chops like they they see so much of the finished product but they don't see the they don't see the foundation or the things that got the drummers there i i hear you man i i i mean i think this is not just an issue in the world of, of gospel drumming i think this is an issue with the whole world of kids growing up today and and you know just having access to so much uh you know, it's like the X games of drumming, you know, and, and that's very exciting stuff when you're young and, and seeing guys do superhuman feats, uh, in whatever style it may be. Um, but again, it's sort of like, uh, you know, is this going to pay the rent when you want to make a living doing this? And of course, you know, for those of us that do pay the rent, the answer is always, Nope. You know, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's not, you know, maybe you have your Aaron Spears or your Vinny Kaliuta that get, that fall into a particular situation, but that isn't, that's usually the, the exception, not the rule. You know, the rule is, Hey, what's your groove like and how appropriately do you play the style? Um, and I think, you know, for reading, like, I think people get so intimidated, especially if they've spent a lot of years learning without, without reading. But I always, I always try to tell my students that all we're doing is filling in the blanks. Like you already know how to do all this stuff. You're just learning to do it from a visual, like by, from looking at a piece of paper and then recognizing what you already do. And I think hopefully maybe that's, it helps to, to uh, demystify it or make it a little less intimidating for, um, you know, for drummers. Cause they're like, oh, I, I could do that. You know, and I mean, they're already, most of these guys are doing stuff so far beyond the basics. So it's not going to take you that long. Yeah, I think a lot of guys just the, the intimidation factor of it all. It, it's it's like they're they're going up to slay a dragon or something like that. And I don't, I don't honestly don't think reading is that difficult, especially if you've been if you've been playing for for some amount of time. Again, you said filling in the blanks. So if if you can just get the the basics of it all, and I and I tell people, you know, growing up playing drums in in, in church. You've, you've already learned the styles because there's so many different styles within gospel music, especially within the last 15, 20 years. You look at uh, artists like Kirk Franklin. He's covered the spectrum from 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 uh, reggae to go-go to ballads to six, eight times. I mean, 
you've learned so many things just from one artist. So you, you already know the style. If someone says play a swing, you know how to play a swing. Like it, but the fact that someone puts it on paper and now that intimidation factor, oh, I already don't know. Like you really much, you pretty much already know. All you have to do is just figure out when to play. When not to play, <laughs> like learn what a rest is. <laughs> right. The most important. Like, <laughs> the, learn what a rest is. The most is. important. Learn what a rest is. Okay. It's the eighth note. You know, that means that means either play it on the snare or crash. You know, it's something as simple as that. And so it's not as difficult as far as reading music that a lot of a lot of drummers really make it out to be. Again, as you said, it's that intimidation factor. And I, I just wish there's a, a, a way that you could get a lot of information out there, good information, because as, uh, as an educator, I see a lot of bad stuff on YouTube. Yeah. Um, but it's the bad stuff that has, you know, thousands and thousands of views. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not just information, but it's also fighting fighting the battle of misinformation as well. Yeah. I just I just wish there were more ways that we could get uh, to break that barrier, one of intimidation and two uh, misinformation. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's basically the, the way in, in keeping with that, I, I see the Internet as just being there's no filters. So you have no idea. You know, and so if you're on YouTube and you watch video A, it's going to send you to something similar to video A for the next video, or it's going to send you to something that has a lot of hits that's popular. And so it there's no gatekeeper of quality, you know, in, in essence, you know, on the other hand, you've got access to everything, which is great. But on the other hand, you know, uh, a lot of it, like you said, is misinformation, bad information, or just puts puts people's headspace in a in a in a direction that's you know uh where you know mis misguided priorities i guess you know you could say as far if if what you want to do is make a living playing the drums then where should your priorities be you know growing up etc i want to ask just a, a couple more questions this has been a really fantastic uh conversation man um the we had talked about this idea of linear fill so now even though we just said there's so much chops Let's talk a little bit about about linear fills because I think that definitely is at the heart of um, what a lot of the the uh, the chops themselves are that guys are using, uh, and I think linear linear is not necessarily a new idea, but I think uh, within this setting of gospel drumming, it's maybe taken it to a whole new level um, as far as what is possible. You know, superhuman kinds of things. So, talk a little bit about linear fills and uh, what that means for people who may not know or how it's used in this setting. Okay, well, linear fills just is is the pretty much definition of it is a broken up effect. It's you, you're, you're hitting whatever surface of the drums by itself. So uh, it, it, it creates a broken up effect. So that could be right, left, meaning right, left, kick, kick, left, whatever, whatever pattern that you're playing. It's, it's just a broken up effect. And it, it was found first uh, when it, it can be found in all types of music. But how it pertains to uh, gospel drumming is Dave Weckl's, uh Next Level and Back to Basics DVD. He he outlined a pattern and it was right left kick. And he took it around the drums. And then he was like, well, you can go right, left kick or kick, left, right or left, left, right. And so people start to create all of these different patterns. And so it was found in a lot of music, but the gospel drummers just tend to make it 
play a lot faster, like a lot faster. And so that broken up effect is now what's considered gospel drumming. And uh, like with that, with the whole Dave Wuckel thing, it just truly evolved to become something that's a staple of now what gospel drumming is. And it can be found in different um, time signatures. Um Gospel drummers tend to do a longer feel. So instead of uh, most feels that could go like leading you up, maybe starting on beat three or beat four, the drum, the gospel drummer just start on beat three of the previous measure. So mm-hmm. now you have instead of a, a one or two beat feel, you have a six beat feel or maybe even an eight beat feel. And so uh, it, it's a way of just pretty much patterns we're going a lot faster. And so uh, if you have, like, say you have pattern A, or if you have patterns A, B, C, and D, a lot of times, all these gospel drummers are doing is just playing simple patterns. And so if you have A, B, C, and D, you can play A, A, B, <laughs> A, D, C, or A, B, C. You know, you can mm-hmm. now you can put these patterns together that, cre- that can create an overlapping phrase that now it's like, oh, that's really, really complicated. But it's typically something simple if you break it down to its bare minimum. It's really simple. It's just the speed of it that makes it difficult. What I like also is that uh, uh, a lot of the, the, the great gospel drummers and gospel chop guys use dynamics really, really effectively um, and, you know, open and closed surfaces. Uh, so, you know, tightly closed hi-hat or... and. Uh, and so you have these weird fills that, you know, something, it's it's quiet, you know, things are popping in and out of the fill as it goes around. I think that's that's another just really cool aspect of it um, that it that is, uh, I don't know, can you speak to that yeah. at all? Is that like kind of a thing that happens a lot? Yes, def- definitely. And what it is, it's it's what we consider ghost notes, just yes, pretty much unact- unact- unaccented notes or, or notes that are underlying in between the accents. <clears throat> And so just take the simple feel right, left kick, right? You could be putting that around the kit, but now you're thinking, okay, if I have, I'm going to accent the right when I hit the, um, the 10 inch, and then I'm going to accent the left by taking it around and then hitting the hi-hat. So now you've created a totally different voicing because you're playing the same pattern, but now you're accenting it at different areas. So you still could be playing everything at, at the same level, but now that you've added accents, the whole feel is totally different now. And what, what typically happens with a lot of gospel drummers as well is a rudimental bass. So you may not necessarily know exactly that you're playing a paradiddle or a paradiddle diddle or whatever it is, but you can you can still create the broken up effect by accenting different things. I, I know I just me personally, I've fallen in love with the inverted paradiddle. So right, left, left, right, left, right, right, left. Yeah, well, I if love you that act, so if you accent right the first right and the last left, now you have right, left, left, right, left, left, right, left, right. And so if you play that around the kit, maybe accenting your right the accents with the with the bass drum. Now you have a whole totally different like array of sounds and voicing that you can play based off of simple rudiment. And so that's that's sim- that's a lot. The 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 emphasis on ghost notes has been like paramount because that's what's going to make your playing stand out because you're you're you're, you're playing what you, you you're letting the voicings that you want to be heard 
played, but still you have these this foundational sound that's still going. Mm-hmm. Cool. And yeah, that, that's that's really really big. Um, uh, something that I've I've been trying to influence is like the just the emphasis of of the kick. Like a lot of times people don't realize. Uh, as they call Joe Hayward said this, this a lot. You have drummers who are all hands or drummers who are all feet. Mm. The really good ones can put both together. Mm. And so that's what's happening now. We're finding more, I guess, like ambidextrous drummers who can really do a lot and put their hands and feet together with the accents. And so sometimes when you create these broken up linear fields or these patterns, the biggest influencer is the kick drum because you have guys doing things with one pedal or single pedal that double pedal players are doing, but it's, you know, they're outlining certain things because it's emphasized with the kick drum. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Um, okay. So to, to finish up the last sort of, which is very much along these lines, the last question I want to ask you relates to the gear itself. Um, when I was just uh, out, you know, when we were at PASIC in November, uh, Eric Moore did a clinic you know, and Eric Moore is probably one of the hottest guys on the scene, obviously, with related to this kind of style of drumming. Um, and I I was always really interested in how, you know, how are the drums tuned? What kind of heads, you know, are being used? What kind of symbol uh, ideas? I, oftentimes, it, it seems to me like you see a lot of gospel chop guys and the toms are almost flat, um, you know, not tilted necessarily very much. And when I tapped on his drums, I noticed the drums were very kind of dead. They, they didn't have a whole lot of ring to them. So maybe you could talk for a minute. I don't know if there is sort of a universal way, but, you know, you would think if guys in church are sort of this, you know, learning certain styles of fills and certain styles of playing, that there would be kind of a certain way to tune the kit to get this sound or to enhance your ability to play that way. So I don't. what do you think about that? A lot of, a lot of people mirror what's going on in, from their, from either the secular world or uh, their top drummers. So what's typically found now is an 8-inch, 10-inch, 12-inch up top and a 16-inch at the bottom. Or it's rare that you find like the older kits, the, 10, tw- the 12, 13, 16. <clears throat> You're getting a lot of fusion kits like 10, 12, 14 or typically 8, 10, 12, 14, and 16 are the size heads that people will use. Um, the, it used to be in the early 90s, people would use like piccolo snares, very thin, maybe uh, three or four inches in, in depth, and like a, a, maybe like a 14 by four or something like that, like really 14 by three, like really skinny snares. Mm-hmm. Or, or you had, I, rem- I remember people used to use like the popcorn snares it would be like a 10 by like a 10 by 13 like really poppy Mm -hmm. but now guys are really getting into depth so you're getting guys playing like 13 by sevens 14 by eights uh you're getting guys starting to use uh, auxiliary snares and that and that came about from like chris dave uh and really got big by like robert sput seawright Mm-hmm. Using these auxiliary sta- snares that sound like really deep, like the '80s dry. Uh, I mean, '80s really wet, the thuddy, like the like really thuddy sounds. You know, that th- these are some of the things that are taking place. But uh, drums really haven't had a lot of resonance in gospel drumming. I can remember 
uh, always seeing people like heavily damping the drums. Like it used to be people would dampen them with like Remo rings or a lot of moon gels. Something, you know, going to certain churches, people would have like towels going in between. It was just really, really dry sounding drums that were they were not as resonant. And so people were just just would just pretty much as far as the setup and the tuning, uh, would just mirror what's going on uh with the with the bigger name guys. Um that, do you, th- that, do you I, think the, the dampening uh or deadening of the drums has to do with being able to play so fast and keep it clean? Yeah, I think people um, really were trying to hear the sound of each individual drum and not letting the resonance get in the way of it all. Yeah. So because you're playing, you know, playing really fast, if everything was really resonant, everything would sound so really muddy. So I, I believe a lot of guys were trying to get dry so they could hear what they were playing individually and, and not have everything, uh, you know, sounding off at the same time. Yeah. Do you, uh, what about cymbals? Uh, do you see a similar, you know, guys using exceptionally dry cymbals? I know, I mean, you know, these days, uh, people are all, everybody's experimenting with cymbal stacks, for example, or with, uh, uh, cymbals with all the, you know, the, the holes cut out of them. So it's, you know, you know, all kinds of weird things, which is so great. But do you think gospel guys, uh, go into a certain direction there with cymbals? Well, the stack is becoming really, really popular. Um, People are <clears throat> always trying to figure out, you know, what's the new stack? Can I use this stack? But as far as in, as as like just I'm, not, I'm I'm talking about the typical gospel drummer, not the not the guy that's endorsed or, you know, very popular. People are, are, are still use uh, some of the same setups. That's a, a ride, two or three crashes, a splash, and some type of auxiliary symbol, uh, because these are the voices of that that's gonna get get you through whatever song that you're, you're looking for that you're gonna be playing. But people are definitely looking for stacks. Uh, but at the same time, companies are starting to target um, gospel drummers. Uh, there, I know for sure Zildjian has something that's called like a praise pack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then Sabian has something that's called the inspirational pack. And they've partnered with big name gospel drummers. And they've they've put these certain symbols into the pack because they feel like that's going to be the the, the the best foundational sound for the gospel drummer. And so it's also a, a targeting, um, uh, a marketing thing for the companies, because if I'm a gospel drummer and I'm at church and I need new cymbals and I go to my pastor, I'm, am I going to say, hey, pastor, I need new cymbals. I need a 21 inch Zildjian uh, you know, K-Custom ride. I need a 18 inch hybrid crash. I need a 16, a 17 inch uh, special drive. You know, he's gonna be like, "What are you talking about?" You know, he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't know any of these terms. But if I go, "Hey, pastor, uh, I need new symbols." Zildjian has this uh, gospel pack that they have. Oh, a gospel pack? Really? I think that's gonna help our service. Go ahead and get that gospel pack. You know, right. that that pastor, that pastor is gonna gonna try to use that terminology to go along with this service. So these companies are really starting to target the gospel drumming community. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if for long, you know, the new thing is they've installed the stack. But uh, the stack pretty much came from, you know, China symbols. It used to really be China symbols and like a splash symbol. But now people are coming up with all different type of crazy combinations. Yeah. Just just get whatever sizzle or sound or effect that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The stacks are really big now. 
Yeah, cool. Very cool. Well, it has been a, a great conversation, Lamont. And uh, it, what is uh, if people are interested in checking out your um, first of all, just tell everybody again the name of of your dissertation, the title of it. Uh, the title of this dissertation is the evolution of contemporary gospel drumming. And uh, and it has a lot of cool transcriptions and stuff. You actually really broke a lot of these tunes down, uh, church tunes and, and what some of these guys are playing, correct? Correct, I did. Uh, it's, I have probably about 40, 40-something transcriptions. Yeah, I lost my mind going crazy uh, with these transcriptions. But yeah, I, I talk about a lot of the, the tunes. I break I break the, the evolution down into four categories. It's drum introductions, uh, regional or Brooklyn-based feels, shout music, and also drum solos, reprises, and interludes. And I have certain transcriptions within each category. But then after um, certain chapters, I, I just give a list of other tunes that I didn't transcribe that also fit into those categories. Very cool. Very, very cool. And uh, actually what we'll do is, uh, is it okay with you if I put the uh, the uh, the link up in the show notes so people can check that out? That is that is that is fine. I'm uh, after pay, after the whole basic uh, presentation. I've been getting so many contacts for people to read it. There is uh, there is some works for me to uh, turn this whole thing into a book. I'm doing some more research, uh, reaching out to more people, uh, and hopefully I can get this get this thing uh, into into the hands of other people so they're not just clicking links and actually have something they can put their hands on. But yeah, go ahead and, and put the link up. Uh, it'd be great. Great and. Uh, your uh, your website also is is great. It has a lot of great videos of you demonstrating stuff, uh, you know, playing some stuff of your own. You you definitely are very accomplished in in this field, amongst many others. All the other stuff you do, your, uh, you know, guys, everybody out there, you know, check, what is what is the website again, Lamont? Just the the, the website is www.lamontlawhorn. That's l a m o n l a w h o r n dot com. Very cool. uh, so com. Yeah, a lot of a lot of really good stuff on there, and I encourage everybody to go check it out. So, Lamont, thanks for this conversation, and uh, I hope that uh, we'll be seeing more of you and more of your uh, more of, of of your approach, and really bringing you know putting some uh, some bringing some new depth to this whole conversation about gospel drumming. Daniel, I truly appreciate it. Thanks for your help. This all started based on one conversation with you, man. You said you can find everything in the music. And from that conversation, I now have, have moved on to do this thing. So I can't thank you enough. Wow. Well, that's that's beautiful. Thanks. And yeah, that 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 uh, we met at a PASIC a few years back. Oh, nine, maybe when I did the thing with Zorro. Was that? Yeah, that that was yeah. it. Yeah, that was cool. That, that was it. Great. All right. Well, thanks, Lamont. And uh, thank you all for for listening to, uh, to the Daniel Glass Show here on Drummer's Resource Podcasting Network. <music>